Oh, kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to everyone at the Kaka to the Hoon of Wonks from the Press Gallery. Um, I'm here with Thomas Coglin in our padded cell in the bowels of Parliament, uh, happily <laughs> insulated from the noises around us. And uh, from his um, self-isolating home, perhaps, uh, is, is uh, Luke Melpass, the... Uh, political editor at Stuff, Thomas Coughlin, a senior reporter at the New Zealand Herald. Um, great to see you, Luke. I hope you're well. I'm all good. Uh, obviously had a bit of a dodgy rat on Monday. There was sort of a shadow. Doctor was sort of like, oh, well, you know, we're better treated as positive, you know, go and get a test. But, you know, thought it'd be fine and, um, and returned a negative PCR the next morning. So um, I'm just working from home today. I'm not isolating. No, good. no. We'll, we'll, I suspect over the next few months we'll all have moments like that. And some of them will turn out to be actually positive. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we'll get there in the end. Well, it has been an extraordinary couple of weeks in and around Parliament. And uh, even as I walked here today, it looked like a completely different place. Uh, Thomas, you're in the building uh, with me now. Every couple of days you've gone out to um, uh, wander through the carnival atmosphere. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what you're seeing at the moment. Um, Well, uh, so I didn't go out the first day because we were told not to. Um, and uh, and I, I listened to that advice. <laughs> um, but then I, I've been out subsequently, and I went out a bit over the weekend, and it certainly softened uh, a lot since I was I, I was in on Monday uh, at the infamous rat incident. Uh, I was also there, and, and that was the last time I checked in on them. And, and, and certainly coming back today, um, they are much uh, kinder, more colourful. It's like. It's like Golden Bay upsticks and move to Pipitia. It's you know it's very. It reminds me a lot of like of holidays I had in the South Island with some you know alternative um, folk uh, who are now outside Parliament. But you, you know. So you does do. that does that mean the skinheads are doing yoga now? Well, they were, they were, I was joking about this this morning, right? Like people are doing yoga, and these are some people who believe some pretty crazy stuff. It does. I don't know. We were just we were just talking before. Like it, it, it feels like it could be like a bad sort of Looney Tunes disguise where people. Take a few tree branches and put them in front of like a tank, or or pencil on a mustache over themselves to pretend they're someone completely different. It could be that, or it could just be people. You know, we we saw some reporting over the weekend uh, and and early this week about there being disputes within the camp, and some of the original kind of like quite hardline. Because I mean, definitely last week, like it was really quite um, visceral that anger against um, the politicians and the media, and 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 that so that, that that seems to have dissipated and i'm not sure whether it's because some of the, those original people have gone some of them have been, been arrested, arrested um some of the original people are still there like the counter spin chaps are still out there the um, people's the people's front for the liberation of yeah or is it the, <laughs> the judean people's front <laughs> but yes yeah, so I, I it's really i don't think we will know the truth about this thing for months and months and months because you know there are some people who are just you you know bog standard um golden bay hippies there are some uh you know quite crazy hippies uh, and there are some you know true believers in nazism and they're all out there and so you, we we will know the extent to which there is a, a, a nazi core a nazi mo- motivation or, a, or whether that is a fringe or yeah to what extent it comprises any significant grouping and i don't think it's, it's it's we'll know the truth about that for, for some time luke um you've been uh, coordinating coverage for the stuff network up and down the country and included the results of a poll showing uh, 30% of um, those surveyed by Horizon this week actually supported the protest. What's your feeling out there about, you know, how much public support there is for a group, you know, 
given that 96% of us have actually been vaccinated? Well, um, I'll make a couple of comments about that that poll. It, it was a smaller poll. It was a snap poll that had a higher margin of error than usual, about 4.5%. However, um, I think uh, compensating for that was, was the fact that it had been done so immediately in the past. I mean, it only came in from the field midday yesterday. So, you know, it's pretty pretty reasonable sort of a snapshot. And Horizon, um, Horizon has a good reputation um, doing this sort of work. And... Um, I was surprised by that number. I think it was a bit higher than I thought it would be. But the question was very binary. Binary. It was, do you support the protest? And let's be honest, thirty uh, percent of the country uh, hates the government's guts and probably supports any sort of protest that's protesting the government. Uh, it also tracks relatively closely the uh, proportion of the population, and this is come out in other polls that has been that's essentially anti-mandate that people might be vaccinated themselves and they might be fine with vaccinations and they don't mind but they don't think that people should be compelled to have to to have to do it so um so essentially morally given that the only uniting factor i think with the crowd is that they are my mandates um i think probably the poll reflects that but i mean it is i think i think it would be a bit of a cause for concern uh, within government because 30 percent is not is not the fringe and you could very easily say well you know if and and i'll agree with this that well yeah a lot of those people if they came and actually saw the protest (laughs) probably their opinion would change um but but they're not going to come and see it and um and i think as well probably there is a creeping feeling that particularly as the protest gains more appearance of sort of um uh the appearance of being a bit more mainstream, I guess you'd say, for lack of a better word, as it maintains that, as it, as it gets more of that appearance, I think probably there is a bit of a sense in that it is a lightning rod for a government that has probably become more arrogant, that uh, has majority, drives through things, and it would be fair to say that Labour are not great listeners, particularly when it comes... Uh, there, there are a lot of policy areas where they say, well, you know, we know, or our ministry has given advice, and that's what we're going for, and I think that would... Um, and I think probably there's a bit of channeling of that to be as well, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, emotions are high at the moment, but irony, it's not something that um, people think about much at the moment. But uh, it is ironic that just at the moment when the anti-mandate call is loudest, you could argue um, there's a good scientific reason uh, for us to drop the mandates. Uh, do you think uh, the government may have to sort of hold off until this is over and then just quietly let it slide? I I think that they could and should be more upfront about the way that they will be assessing when this ends. Because, um, I mean, the Prime Minister, I think it's remarkable if you think about it, I think it was for the first time last week she made an oblique sort of comment saying, well, basically, it's, oh, it's not going to last forever. But, I mean, you know... A small amount of the population is un- is is unvaccinated, and um, and you know you might think that's reasonable, you might think it's nuts or whatever. But they are people who can't fully participate in society. In fact, a, a fair bit of what 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 they can do has been has been greatly curtailed. And and for because- the state to use that sort of power, I think um, you know some sort of clear indication of 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 how the time limiting will be assessed on that. I think. 
I, I think I actually think it's quite. I actually think it's quite reasonable. I don't know what. What, what do you yeah. think? Yeah. So, so um, th- this issue of uh, we use the mandates to essentially pump up the vaccination rate. We got it to ninety six percent first dose. Seems like job done. We now know that Omicron is caught by people who are vaccinated, can be re-caught by people who are vaccinated. Uh, Sure, once they're boosted, they're much less likely to go to hospital, which is great for the hospital system. But it doesn't necessarily, of course, stop the uh, people catching it or transmitting it. So the initial driver for the mandates was to, you know, keep the spreaders out of the workplace and out of the cafes and restaurants. Well, we now know that everyone can spread it and everyone can catch it, maybe not in a dangerous way. So the initial sort of um, driver for the mandates is gone, particularly now we've got those vaccination rates up high enough. Um, Thomas, do do you think that uh, as we get closer to the borders opening, 10 days time, and as we start to, you know, get through this peak, I mean, I must say, who knows what's going to happen with numbers, but, uh, you know, we're headed towards 2,000. But the numbers of people in hospital, only one person in ICU, you know, touch wood, laminated product uh, where we we might actually get through this and then you've got a lot more freedom to say okay the 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 crisis is past we can be a bit more um chilled about it yeah i think i mean you've got two two kind of questions which go into what to do about the mandates going forward which is the the efficacy of the mandate in terms of stopping stop, stopping unvaccinated people from infecting other people and, and kind of limiting the uh, limiting the um, the ability of the vaccines to allow people to live a normal life. You know, if you have a, an unvaccinated school, an unvaccinated nightclub or an unvaccinated whatever, in the Delta era, that would be a significant problem which could undermine the, the utility of the, vaccine, of the vaccine for an entire sort of city. Um, obviously, that's not the case uh, in the Omicron kind of era where, um, where the, the, there is no... Um, there's no telling how much you uh, unvaccinated and and, and vaccinated people could could participate in spreading it to everyone. Um, And so you've got this other question which opens up, which is what what social harm are the mandates doing? And as the the utility of the mandates decreases uh, in terms of stopping these super spreader events, etc., you've really got to start to, to, to look at the other issue, which is how much um, harm they're creating. And obviously they are creating a lot of harm for the people who are hit by them. Um, and I, I suppose this, the, the balance between those two questions changes over time, particularly with Omicron. I, I guess that would be that would be what will what will determine in, in some part whether we maintain the mandates for, for longer. And with the border opening, yeah, I mean, certainly one once we get to tourism, obviously, you know, the, 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 the um, vaccine there is a kind of a, uh, a foreigner vaccine mandate effectively because you can't really get into the, into the country um, if you're not a, a citizen without one. Um, but obviously getting people to uh, New Zealand is part of a global vaccine, um, European Union vaccine standard, vaccine pass standard, so there is some interoperability with the vaccine pass system. But certainly when we've, you know, you know, we're opening up to migration, opening up to tourists, opening up to everyone, uh, is there a sort of technical difficulty in terms of maintaining this quite restrictive, quite um, technical system uh, Going forward, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but one one assumes when you have loads of border crossings, it just gets more difficult. Particularly when, um, particularly when uh, we now know that uh, the booster is not included in the mandate, and the government's making yeah. noises about not including any fourth or fifth doses in the mandate, 
And when people have sort of quietly stopped using the QR readers and not yeah. using the Bluetooth, because it's clear once your um, once this thing's out, elimination's gone, and your trackers and traces are overwhelmed, the sort of point of it sort of um, uh, fades away. And of course, there's the usual concern that people have about, well, if I if I if I sign in and something happens, I'm going to get the call, and I don't really want to self isolate. Yeah. So. New, New Zealand is a price is a is a price taker yeah. on, in all global standards, and if if we are reconnecting with the world, which we you know inevitably we must, um, you know you've got to say that we're probably going to revert to the mean um, in terms of global standards, which is to have a pretty liberal. Um, approach to that you've, sense. You've never made revert to the mean sound so attractive. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 Luke, talking of reverting to the mean, um, and you have uh, connections into Australia. We all we all do. On Monday, they open up and they do it. You know, pretty chunkily. Uh, you know, you go in there, you get one or two days, you get your rat result, and then you're out of there. <laughs> Whereas we're still doing seven days self isolation. So um, how's – and then we've got to wait until the following Monday before we all open up. Apart from Western Australia, Australia's really, you know, going for it. Uh, do, do you think that this frustration about restrictions and border openings will mount as we can see what's going on in Australia and realise, you know, we're not, we're not going to be able to have everyone in here until October and we'll be quite behind the rest of the world? I think so, Yeah. In short, I think yes. I think that New Zealand, more than anything else, New Zealand's cautious approach really reflects just in her and her personality and political caution. You know, that's that is actually just where she's at, um, and she's demonstrated it for you know to, to some years now. Um, uh, but um, I, I mean, I think particularly the in the tourist travel, the intent is to try and you know they've sort of said by July and then by October for some other people um but i think the intent will be the political intent will be to surprise on the upside there so they will try and come in and you know you know abracadabra in april or whatever we're going to open up uh, (laughs) may i don't know which is still a long time which is still a long time behind it behind australia but i mean i think the brutal truth is probably that particularly at the moment before omicron really entrenches itself in the community i think Ardern probably has public sentiment more or less on her side, and so is on pretty is on pretty safe political ground here. Uh, however, once Omicron comes in and it sort of becomes endemic, and people are a bit more like, oh well, you know, my kid, it might not. It's just it's it's just a thing now. Then uh, probably the political calculus on on that will change. She wants so, to save the winter the winter tourism season as well, which I think she, on the on the current yeah. with the current um, time frame. The visa waiver countries would would be able to save the winter ski, right. ski season, and I, I guess the, the other the, the big issue for tourism is obviously it's not not um, it's not us, it's China, which is not you know yeah they'll never they're, yeah so I can't imagine <laughs> they never so open up, particularly <laughs> with the scenes. I mean, I would also add to all of that that um, I imagine that by the time they're opening to non-New Zealand residents, um, that probably the wait time will be down to three days or it'll be gone entirely. Particularly like by... They'll probably cali- I think they'll probably calibrate that at the same time. Um, and, um, yeah. Particularly yeah. by June, July, um, July being the start of the ski season, and the Australians won't want to self-isolate for seven days. And um, 
you're right. By by then, you'd think that uh, that gap starts to close. Just one final thing before what you. Tourist, what tourist is going to come if they have to self isolate? No, <laughs> no, that's a lot of watching <laughs> television. Um, so I um, just got a couple of minutes to go, Luke. Before you have to head out, I just wanted to uh, finally ask you, from a big picture point of view, is the government and the PM still getting the spidey senses of the public mood right in their calls on? Um, uh, borders and mandates and that sort of thing because we've had a couple of poll results recently. I know they're they're all over the place. Uh, Courier poll, Roy Morgan poll, which seem to show a, a, a closing of the gap. Uh, uh, you know how 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 are we shaping up um, heading into the rest of this year in terms of is the government managing that uh, tightrope in terms of you know trying to get it right? Oh, well, I think there's a rocky few months coming because. Um Omicron here, as it has been just about everywhere else, will probably end up being a bit chaotic. Um, just loads of people will get it. There'll be heaps of people off work. The rules will be constantly changing and basically liberalising as um, as uh, as events just overtake best laid plans. And uh, New Zealand's had the advantage that we can learn from other countries. Uh, if the rat, if we get a decent rat testing regime in place, that will help particularly, you know, keep supply chains unclogged and that sort of thing. But I, I don't, throughout the next few months, I don't see much upside for the government at all. And then overlaid on, overlaid on top of that is, are you getting the big structural calls right? Should the, you know, is the border open? Should the border be open? Uh, what are your isolation times at home if you get COVID? Uh, what should they be? Um, how's the economy going? How's, um, in particular, and I, you know, um, under, you know, going under all of this will be inflation. You know, cost of living is just right. So I think I think there's a pretty hairy few months out there for the government. At the moment, I haven't seen that much evidence that the National Party is really kind of poised and got a, you know, Luxon hasn't been there for long enough to really uh, capitalise on that yet. I think um, they haven't quite worked out uh, what it is they are for. They're against cost of living rises, aren't we all? But, um, <laughs> but kind of working out a uh, I guess a, a retail politics friendly way to to start prosecuting that agenda is is a bit more difficult. So yeah. I, I think it'll be I think it'll be tough for the government. Yeah, Luke um, Melpas, thank you very much. I'll, I'll let you get on to your, your meeting, and we'll um, uh, have a great safe weekend. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the rest of your enjoy Everyone the rest of your chat. Cheers. See you guys. So Thomas, um, yeah, the government is uh, clearly the gaps um, the gaps tightening, but do you think that uh, Christopher Luxon has captured the mood in a bottle and is uh, really um, hurting the government with it, or is just just managing to not stuff it <laughs> stuff it up? Yeah, I'd, I'd, agree, I'd agree with what both, what, what both uh, yourself and Luke have said on that. Like um, structurally, I think the government's got a lot of like the 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 the, the border set against the government for the next sort of twelve months. Um, Inflation's going to be a nightmare. Um, part of it, a lot of it's coming from overseas, but part of it certainly isn't. We we had that come up in select committee this week, where um, Carolee McLeish sort of danced on the head of a pin when asked quite quite sort of like narrowly by Simon Bridge as well. You know, what is the government responsible for this? What what role has the government played in this? Is this like really a dollar operating allowance sensible in, a, in an inflationary environment? And you know, obviously, she's the chief executive of the treasury. Secretary of the treasury does not want to throw her minister under the bus, but um, because of that, she gave a very, very, very woolly answer, um, which you know, 
basically said that yes, you know, some some stuff that the government is doing is contributing to inflation. Anyway, apparently there's going to be a speech in it. There's a rumor going around um, that there is going to be a speech in it. A speech, a speech from uh, from the treasury. Ah, so, right. but we you know we have not um, confirmed that yet. Uh, but 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 uh, Wellington is abuzz with the treasury weighing in on inflation. So that'll be interesting because it's a, you know it's a nuanced argument. I think. Um, it's interesting that Dominic Stevens has come in as the chief economic advisor. At Westpac, he had a particularly strong view that interest rates up or down were a huge driver of the housing market, mm. and Treasury seems to have adopted that view once he's there now as the principal economic advisor. And once you take that view that interest rates drive asset prices, then you start getting very interested in um, the other influences on interest rates and how um, the government's role as a fiscal policy uh, driver uh, and whether or not it's a true mate to monetary <laughs> policy um, is in place. It's uh, quite funny this week, I think, as well. The, the Dominic um, came up with, I think, I think it was um, actually it was um, during that select committee that they, they did. They made this announcement in the select committee that yes, you know, interest rates having this impact on asset prices in the housing market. And it was a Zoom select committee, but you could almost there were about there were twenty people watching it. I was looking at the number on on Facebook, and like you know, you could almost hear everyone saying, "Finally, like, <laughs> <laughs> finally they admit." <laughs> that having these super low interest rates for 10 years might have had some effect on the fact that, you know, house prices have um, shot up by hundreds of thousands of dollars in a decade. But, you know, it's a dirty little secret. And the dirty little secret underpinning all of our monetary and fiscal policies for 30 years is that uh, the whole lot has been driven to keep interest rates low and to get them lower. I mean, when you're a government that's trying to restrict your debt, your main aim really is to keep interest rates low. And when it turns out keeping interest rates low or driving them lower makes your median voter much, much richer, then no wonder you get excited about um, trying to restrain your spending and get yeah. interest rates down because it's great for your voters. Well, it's interesting. Like, So, so to back to your original question regarding um, Luxem. So, yes, I think structurally everything is is stacked against the government in the next 12 months. Like the, the Omicron will be messy, It'll, you know. No one's managed to do it well, and, and New Zealand did elimination well because elimination is structurally something that's very compatible with New Zealand. There are very few countries that could do elimination, and New Zealand was one of them. And you know, and that that's not to um, to to kind of um, sneer at the, the the role of the government and that the government did an exceptional job, but it also had a country that was structurally capable of doing it. I don't think the UK could have done it. You know, the UK is an island, but it's plugged into a continent. You can't you can't do elimination there. As the UK has discovered, it is actually part of a continent. Um, <laughs> as you know, the irony. And um, but but uh, so, so to, 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 to Luxon's issue, like he's been prosecuting this line of inflation, but the government's like, yep, you know, there's inflation, but you know what? We've we've we put up the minimum wage uh, in line with inflation, so people on low incomes um, will actually, and they put it up uh, in line with CPI inflation, which is interesting because the household um, household living cost survey actually showed that that for most households. Their household living costs are, are rising below and um, below, uh, less than the inflation rate. So, I mean, obviously there's, t- there's tax taken out of the, um, the minimum wage hike, but you know, so people on the, on the lowest incomes are going to be absolutely nailed by inflation. But the government's kind of making the argument that it's, it's their kind of um, their mate helping them. National does have the is- the, the issue of um, of uh, bracket creep uh, and and tax bracket indexation, which they've been pushing for a while. I think that's going to come up again because I, I think. Um, David Farrer, a couple of people on the right have been making the point that, that um, and the taxpayers union have been making this point actually, that, that people, um, 
Should David Farron, the taxpayers' union, ask one and the same, really? Um, that, that if you were earning 44 hours, earning the minimum wage um, at 44 hours a week, um, then you are now having some of your income, very little, taxed at the highest, or I think the 30% um, tax rate, which is a bit, it's a bit ridiculous. Um, Particularly when so many people are on accommodation supplements and working for families, trying to yeah. pigeonhole various people into various groups, it's tough. Um, we have a pretty, a pretty small, um, a pretty big tax wedge. Um, it's the guts of the problem here is we're not taxing capital, income, and wealth, and. Uh, yeah. The reason the government has not introduced indexation is that it's the easiest way the to easiest in, way. <laughs> to increase taxes. But it's also, particularly when you go to big juicy GST rate, it is the easiest way to get back to surplus, repay that debt, and get interest rates down yeah. uh, without too much political pain. Because it's a boiling frog drip drip issue rather than a big old hairy axe to your income with a tax increase. Yeah. Well, you think a bit of inflation plus those tax brackets is going to—I mean, as, as the government's seen, like like government tax revenue is surprised on the upside basically every month since, well, as long as I can remember, it's been incredible. So I, I think. Yeah, Grant Roberts, the income tax situation is very strange, right? Because we've got all these tax brackets up to $70,000, then we've got nothing, and then we've got this $100,000 tax bracket. And it just, it does seem to me that if you would, there would be an argument for for lifting those a wee bit to help people lower down, or uh, taxing wealth, or up to gains of It it is starting to make that 39 cent um, rate a bit more relevant. It is. When when it was put in at the last, or suggested at the last election, we all thought, oh no, I'm going to get up there anytime yeah. soon. Before you know it, if you've got 6% a year uh, yeah. wage inflation, you won't be, won't well, be long before we're there. They've already, already hit 50% more people than they thought it would, which, you know, I mean, great for them. I'm, I'm, I'm not sorry for them. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting. Yeah. It's embarrassing and, for IAD. And, and also the same with the Brightline t- uh tax, which seems to be bringing in a bit more than people expected. Yes. And uh, thanks to an awful lot of cap- <laughs> capital gain. Yeah, people love houses. Yeah. Anyway, so Luxon, it's hard to know. I think he's, he's um, he does the jonky aspirational stuff quite well. I think he, like, there's this issue where everyone wants him to be Steve Jobs, and sometimes he comes across as, like, you know, Kiwi David Brent. It's just, <laughs> it's, you'd like... So, and I don't think I think he's aware of it, and his office is aware of it. Like, like the, the TED Talk kind of aspect to it, like Gareth get the guitar kind of stuff. And 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 but even the, even though he is aware of it, he can't kind of stop it. And he's I think he'll be he'll be quite good on the campaign. Like he's a really nice guy. Um, like like very um, he's got that that sort of politician ability to be incredibly engaging and, and nice and humble. Um, I must say, I've been more impressed with his retail political skills than yeah, I thought I would be. Uh, yeah, he, that will surprise. I, I think. I think what will surprise Labour as well is that you know Judith did that Ponsonby Road thing and and looked really weird and out of touch, but you know Luxon can walk down the street, shake people's hands, and look. And he's done. You know, he's done that already. He's done this his nationwide tour, and um, and I think they'll be surprised at at how easily he does. He does the nice guy thing, and people respond to it. And you're going to have a lot of images on television of a warm, friendly kind of caring uh, leader of the National Party, which which we haven't had, you know, like like Bill was a nice person but struggled with the kind of like, I'm your mate kind of thing. And, and Labour hasn't had to go up against that since 2014, nearly a decade ago. Yeah. And I must say, um, particularly last week in the first week of Parliament, in the um, uh, uh, first speeches of the year, 
his lines started to resonate a bit more, particularly around the, you know, uh, uh, lots of announcements about announcements, but no actual um, <laughs> results. And uh, uh, I think the last couple of weeks he's managed to um, steer clear of, you know, uh, stuffing it up by stumbling into um, a dangerous area. But at the same time, uh, throw a few zingers in there and um, come across with some energy. Yeah, he's handled the protest really well. And I think, you know, when you think about Judith Collins, like, I don't think she would have handled that very well. No. So there, there are many bad calls that you could make with a protest like that, especially if you're if you're someone who's, you know, Who's, who's polling not so well, you look at those people out there and you think, maybe you're my people, you know. And Luxon's quite clearly, talk about, you know, not going to go there. This I is s- not what I, I want. I see Winston's popped Winston. up. Winston's <laughs> popped up again. Is this going to work for him? Uh, yeah. Um, who knows, right? Like 5% is not a huge, I think it's 150,000 people, um, roughly. So, you know, like, like that's, if everyone who is unvaccinated decides to vote for someone, then you've got something there for you. Um, although one suspects that people who are unvaccinated are not, um, you know, habitual voters. So that's your issue, I suppose. It's, you know, it's a turnout issue. And, yeah, I find it, I find one of, the, one of the interesting things about the protest is that for, like, a decade or more, people have talked about the missing million, Labour talked about the missing million, you know, uh, Bill English's social investment approach had this idea of finding people who were difficult to reach and and working out how to make government services work for people who just have never have never interfaced with the government before or have interfaced with the government too much in terms of, like, the criminal justice system. And now, all of a sudden, after searching for these people, both parties have searched for them for, for a decade, they've all shown up on the lawn of Parliament. And, <laughs> and, you, and, and, and I think people, people are somehow surprised that they don't like the government very much. Um, but, but in some ways, like a lot of them strike me, and certainly from speaking to them, as people who they just did not, they, you know, they're quite happy with um, not uh, being touched by the government and would like the government very much to leave them alone. And, that, and the mandate system has meant that they are forced to interact with the government because their pub is kicking them out, or they can't go to funerals and tangihanga or whatever. They I, can't do what their lives. I wonder how much sort of political and social scarring is going to occur with this. I, it occurred to me as I was walking up the street past... Um, a bunch of signs that were saying, and you can see what they were trying to do. There, there was a sign that was saying, thanks for keeping Delta out, but Omicron is different and now we don't need the mandates. And my immediate reaction was, well, you know, we took the hit, we took the jabs and um, protected you, and now yeah. <laughs> you want to you wanna get, get a free pass. This there's an element of them versus us. Yeah, it's really here. tribal. It is and, really tribal. And and I wonder, you know, whether that sticks and whether we can, you know, get through that or whether we remember, you know, who was on which side when. You know, I, I for example, um, am old enough to remember that the Salvation Army was on the wrong side, of, badly on the wrong side of the debate on homosexual law reform, which meant I didn't donate or or um, think good things about them for 30 years. Mm. And I, I wonder whether we'll remember in 20 years' time, are you one of the anti-vaxxers? I remember you. You were the guy I unfriended on that thing called Facebook, which no one is on anymore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and there are families where, you know, people are, 
one side or the other. It's it's a painful thing for New Zealand, uh, and I I wonder how that scars um, uh, our society and our politics. In particular, for example, if we let the mandate slide or there's some sort of um, time limited, you know, they expire. What happens to those people who were sacked and then come back and say, um, how come I was sacked during that period and that guy who didn't get vaxxed um, didn't get sacked? You know, uh, is there, a, is there a, a case to say that doesn't seem fair? Yeah, I mean, there is an irony, right? Like, at the, at the end of last year, when we were looking at that 90% target to, to, to move away from the... Um, the to, 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 to put down the Auckland boundary and, and move into the um, traffic light system at the end of last year. Um, and we were talking about um, hard-to-reach people, people who didn't trust the government. Um, we were talking about the Maori vaccination rate and talking about... Um, yeah, people people who didn't not trust the government. They had, they had very good reason not to trust the government. Um, I was listening to... The Gone by Lunch, Lunchtime podcast, and Ben Thomas mentioned someone I think who who was um, swept up in the Lake Alice kind of um, situation, and, and doesn't you know just doesn't trust the government. And you think, yeah, there are a lot of people who have a really a totally fair reason not to trust the government. The government, you know, is not a good faith actor currently in a lot of areas, and it hasn't been a good faith actor for the entire time it's existed to many people. It has been a bit you know good faith actor to, to most people most of the time it's existed. I think it's probably fair to say in the case of the New Zealand. Um, uh, government, um, you know, uh, after it, you know, after the after it stole everyone's land and um, gave it, you know, that was, but yeah, I mean, and there you go. There's there's the heart of the the the, gov- the government's um, uh, issue for a lot of Maori is is yeah, it's a fair weather friend. And that, uh, and we congratulate ourselves a lot on having higher trust in our government than other countries, where um, there, you know, there are other histories and other uh, atrocities and um, instabilities that have made it even worse. But I, I, th- I hope that after this, governments, oppositions, civil society realise the importance of of. Uh, trust and cohesion, because in in effect, the reason we've gotten out of this so scot free so far, touch wood, yeah. is that ninety six percent got the first vaccination rate. And you're right, there are people who don't trust government, and it could have been a hundred percent. But next time, we will have to ensure that that number is higher than ninety six percent. If we're going to avoid, you know, some sort of horrible British or US situation where yeah. the death rate's three thousand per million instead of ten, there needs to be a, some sort, a, some sort of um, rapprochement or some, a, a process of kind of healing. I think because you know, I, I mean, even just being online, like you, you hear a lot of stuff that's said about anti-vaxxers as being sort of selfish and wicked, and they don't care about kids and they hate, you know, whatever it is they hate, um, and you know. I, I'm actually in a position where I, I don't personally closely know anyone uh, who's anti-vaccination, and, I, and I'm in a real minority there because actually, you know, most people I know do know someone. I bet some um, people would like to reach out to you. Yeah, well, they do. <laughs> <laughs> they do. My, they, 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 they still reach out to me, but, my, but honestly, my, my, I've got a big, big, um, big Catholic family, and uh, you know, like, like, yeah, everyone, everyone's into um, into vaccinations, uh, which is great. Um, but, um, but, but. But but I, yeah, I, like I, like I worry that about about the stuff that's said about anti-vaxxers, and and, and ultimately, like I, I believe very strongly that you have the right to say no to the, to the vaccine. And I do actually believe that um, 
is my personal view that um, that the mandate system is only can only be sustained uh, if it's temporary. Like you know, if, if if someone went out and said this this vaccine mandate system is a three year, four year, five year system, then I'd probably consider where I stood on on the mandates too. Um, and I'm supportive of them if they you know currently I think it's um, justifiable and they've been justifiable for as long as I've existed. Um, yeah, so so I, you know, you, you I think do we're on that on no. the cusp of where their use has expired, yeah, and where the emergency is fading, and uh, I can see why the government is going to run a mile from trying to uh, uh, jam the booster shot or the fourth or fifth shot yeah. into and that mandate. But I, I do, I think, I think some people who are pro-vaccination probably need to reflect on the kind of high moral rhetoric they've used to attack anti-vaxxers who you know, have, I mean. Some of them are like profoundly deluded and and you know have, need help, um, and and others have their own reasons for distrusting the government. And um, you know that's a that's a problem. I don't think it's I don't think it reflects too seriously on someone's kind of moral place. It's tough though. You know we've all as journalists been in the position where we've either read signs or received handwritten notes in our letterboxes threatening us with. Um, Unpleasant ways to die. <laughs> so it's pretty hard to, you know, forgive and forget that stuff. We all have to take the high road, I suppose. But yeah. um, th- th- some stuff's been said that will not be forgotten. Yeah. No, it's going to be um, the, the sort of – it's funny It's funny having had such a successful pandemic in so many ways, health-wise, and um, partly economically in terms of the employment situation, partly not economically in terms of the house price situation. But, you know, the less said of that, the better. Um, but, but certainly the social come down, that'll be interesting too. Then again, like socially, everyone's, everyone's emerged from the pandemic in a state. Like you look at the Brits with what's happening with Boris and, and, and socially it seems like they're at each other's throats and, and the Americans are kind of continuing their long run slide into something, um, which is kind of... Uh, I read Barack Obama's book last summer, and he kind of puts the, sets the date at Sarah Palin being selected as a vice presidential nominee, where where America sort of um, chose stupid over substance. And um, yeah, well, we hope it all we all get out of this without um, something much worse. And yeah. we didn't even mention Ukraine, and we won't because oh, yeah. <laughs> um, th- there's. Um, stuff happening in the world. Thomas, fantastic to have you on uh, talking about the week that was. And thanks again also to Luke, who had to nip away. Uh, It's um, been a great uh, lap around the traps. And we'll see you in a week's time where the (laughs) the campsite is still out there. And and whether um, we'll be offered the the sausages on the white bread. We'll see what happens. Should broadcast from the camp. That's, yeah. (laughs) They are at the stage of occupation where they could almost have a pirate radio kind of, you know, thing going on, right? Oh, yeah. Festivals usually have their own radio yeah, stations. Yeah, no, maybe a you know a joint broadcast on Counterspin Media. <laughs> Get Steve Bannon to, to, to call in. Yeah. Anyway, good to see you, Thomas. Uh, this has been Hoon uh, of Wonks in the Press Gallery. I'm Bernard Hickey. I've been with Thomas Cogden from the New Zealand Herald and Luke Melpass, the political editor of Stuff. Ka kite anō.